Back to school means tests, right? Yay, tests, everyone's favorite. Not a lot of amens or hallelujahs to that. You know, we used to always think about tests around school, maybe around driving, maybe around pregnancy. Um, Now when we hear the word test, we have this unfortunate image come to our mind, right? That we do a drive-through and we're not getting handed a cheeseburger, we're getting something shoved up our nose. Um, Today has just one question on the test, and here it is. It's actually found in your title this morning, and it's this. Who is like God? Who is like God? We just sang about this. We actually just talked about that. The word holy means altogether different. Who is like God is the question I want to pose to you because of where the text takes us this morning. I would say this, that the answer to this question has implication for every other test you will ever face in life. Who is like God? God. Now, some of you might be wondering, why are there certain people in our midst who are smugly looking around and snickering with that knowing look on their face? It's because of this. They have photographic memories, and they remember 10 weeks ago when we talked about the fact that Micah, the one who wrote the book we've been studying, his name means, who is like God? That's what Micah means. Don't you love the way God embeds his brilliance into the, into the life of, of, our, of our story? Micah, whose name means who is like God, finally asks the question very explicitly here in chapter 7. We're going to get to Micah seven eighteen this week where he says who is like God. But implicitly, he's been weaving this idea, this question, and the answers that accompany it all through the entire book. James, as in the Bible author, reminds us that tests are good, right? Why are tests good? Tests reveal who we are and where we are at. Tests reveal who we are and where we are at. We have a cultural climate right now that is screaming this message to you, that our true selves are discovered and developed by affirmation. That our true selves are discovered and developed by affirmation. Therefore, if you do not affirm me and my life choices, you are being hostile to me developing my true self. Nod your head if this message resonates and you've heard this message. This is fundamentally untrue. It's fundamentally untrue to say that our true selves are discovered and developed simply by affirmation. Every parent knows this. Every loving parent will lovingly confront their children many, 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 many times in their lifetime. Why? Because they love them. And our true self is not just discovered and developed by endless ongoing affirmation. In fact, James tells us, and the Bible tells us, that it's actually the opposite. Is affirmation needed? Wildly so. But our true selves are revealed and developed by opposition. Our true selves are revealed and developed by opposition. Don't storms show us that God is able? It's it's in the storms of our faith, in the storms of our health, in the storms of our relationships, 
that we realize, God, you really do come through on your promises. You really are able to comfort like no one else can comfort. You really are the rock that I'm building on. It also reveals where we're at. The opposition that we have reveals what's most important to us. So tests are really important. They're important for a second reason. Tests help us graduate. Aren't you stuck in the second grade until you take some tests that prove you can go on to the third grade? Absolutely. So why would we hate tests? Why such an aversion to tests? If tests are what actually help us graduate, what if we said, I don't want Johnny to ever feel uncomfortable? I don't want him to ever come to school and hate school or dislike me as his teacher, so I'll never give him a test. Well, Johnny stays in second grade. Why do so many adults act like children? Because they've been spared tests in their life. Tests help us graduate. You ever read James and go, consider all joy when you encounter various trials? What? What kind of masochistic religion is this? What does that even mean? Tests help you graduate. Revel in the opportunity when tests come. God is wanting to move you on, prepare you for something future. Micah and his countrymen are in the midst of a severe test. It's the result of another test. You know what their primary test was? Here's some freedom, Israel, Judah and Samaria, uh, uh, um, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. Here's some freedom. They failed that test. What did they do with their freedom? They became experts at evil. Sweet, I've got some free time on my hands. Sweet, we're not being invaded by countries. Sweet, the land is prosperous. How can I get good at evil? That's what they did with it. They failed that test, so God is now issuing a different kind of a test. It's a discipline test. So his countrymen are in the midst of a test right now. We talk about a third kind of test, and that is this. We are instructed repeatedly to test what we hear and test what we know. I said this week one, that you were made to celebrate what is good and just. As an image bearer of God, that is hardwired into you. You are made to celebrate what is good and just. But isn't it true that goodness and justice changes with the truth. So what we think is good and just in one season, once more comes to light, we realize, oh, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. Week one, I told you the story of Curran and I who showed up at a car accident, and we went from uh, tenderly talking to this guy and caring for him who's bleeding profusely, it was a, a giant scene, to realizing moments later that he was the perpetrator probably of a crime and he's caused this and we actually sort of helped detain him there. What is good and just, uh, the first moments on the scene of that accident changed when the light of truth came on to the picture. So how on earth do you know what is true? How do you test the truth? Let me run some things. These should be really easy for us. Uh, but just because someone says it's true, is it true? Yes or no? No. I think we're doing good so far. I agree. Just because someone quotes someone else who says it's true, is it necessarily true? Yes or no? No. Okay, I would agree with that. 
How about this? Just because someone says they are speaking for God and that God says this is true, is it true? Yes. No. Maybe. Let me ask you this question. Here's the follow-up. Have a lot of atrocities been done in the name of God? Are a lot of atrocities today, this very moment around the world, being done in the name of Almighty God? Absolutely. We looked at false prophets in another season. Here's what's interesting. God repeatedly says, trust me, you must have faith, follow through, even though you can't see yet what's going on. And yet through the scriptures, we are not called to blind faith. We have all been gifted tools to help us test the truth. There's a real question. I want real answers. What are some of the tools you are equipped with as a human being to test the truth? Call it out. Don't think too hard. You're here. The the word of God. Okay. He just raised up his Bible. What else? Discernment. Okay. What else? Prayer. What else? What someone has said in the past. So, so comparing track record experience. What else? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The gifts of logic, the gifts of reason, the gift of clear thinking. The gift that words have meaning and definitions and how we use them matters. Everyone look around you for a second. Stop looking at me. Just look around you. Isn't the community a tool to help you test what is true? It is. The community that you surround yourself with is actually a mirror um, celebrating certain kinds of behavior and, and shunning and, and rebuking certain kinds of behavior. Church, here's what's remarkable. We have all of us, no matter our station in life, no matter our experiences, every single one of us have been gifted these tests for truth. And that we don't just set someone up and say, can you go meet with God like Moses on the mountain? You figure it out. It's too hard to figure out what God's saying. Micah's a really thick book. It's hard to understand. I'm kind of busy, but we'll pay you to go study Micah and tell us what it means. And that is not the picture of the church. Picture of the church is God's given all of us ways to test the truth. So how do I know what is good and true? I'm glad that James raised the Bible, put it up in the air. When something's really, really important, God does what we do. He wrote it down. Again, if I tell my kids, man, you need to absolutely make sure to turn off the burner. In fact, that's so important, let me write it down. I'll put it right here on the fridge. No better yet, I'll tape it over the burner handles. God went on record with the Bible. This is so powerful and compelling. Micah was written centuries ago. God went on record to write this thing down. That's a testable thing. That's one of the things that makes Christianity unique, in fact. If you're here struggling and questioning, hey, but how do we know the Bible's true? That's a great question. I welcome that question. And God welcomes that question. So God went on record to write it down. So how do we know what is good and just? Micah tells us. He, God, has told you, people, what is good. That's how. We don't come up with good ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed this yet or not, or if you're humble enough to realize this, we don't come up with wisdom ourselves. You don't know what's good for all people, for all of time. Look at what God's written down. What's he gone on record? He has told you, oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, 
and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, but why should I listen to Micah? Good job. You're catching on. That's exactly where where our brain should go. Why should we listen to Micah? Isn't Micah just saying, thus saith the Lord? Isn't he just quoting that says, God says this? Do we necessarily, therefore, uh, unchallenged listen to anyone like me who stands up and says, thus saith the Lord? No. And the Bible makes allowance for us, and that's why we're in Deuteronomy 18. If you're in Deuteronomy 18, look at your Bible. Uh, If you weren't able to find it in time, um, you can look at the screen. And it says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. That is another human being. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. You hear what's being said? If, a, if I put my words in a prophet, which I'm going to do, this is happening, then you're required of all that he says. It's the exact same thing if I tell the younger sibling, go tell older sibling, dad says, come here. If they faithfully go and says, say, dad says, come here, and the older child doesn't come, do I get mad at the younger sibling? No. They faithfully delivered the message. That older sibling is required of him to listen to the prophet younger sibling, even if that sibling annoys them. They're the message carrier. Do you see that God already is predicting the wickedness of sinful people? There's going to be people who are going to raise up saying, oh, that's sweet. God said, give me all your money. Touch the screen. Get a blessing and send me a check. God knows false prophets are going to rise up. God knows people are going to use this for wicked means. So he makes provision for that. Now, you should be saying exactly what they are saying. Look at what's written in the very next verse. This is so great. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Isn't God teaching us to test the truth? Wait a minute, how are we going to know? If both come, they're both like people, they both say they're speaking for you, how are we going to know? What's it going to say? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You don't need to be afraid of a false prophet. The false prophet needs to be afraid of God. (laughs) So here's part of the test. I think it's exactly what Phil said in the back. What did they say before? Has it come true? Let's track this thing. Little side note, this is a lost art. People spout all kinds of stuff in all kinds of settings, and they aren't held accountable for their absolutely faulty thinking. In one generation, it sways this way. In another, it sways this way. Things move so quick now that in one week, Things can be said here. And if we spotlight it over here and never talk about this again, sharp people amongst us are going, wait a minute. They just said that a while ago. That's hypocrisy. That's both can't be right. 
So when we apply this standard to Micah the prophet, how does he do? Does Micah the prophet pass the test? That is a worthwhile question at the end of Micah as much as it is from the beginning. Remember that over 30 years, Micah was a prophet. He was a nobody from nowhere, and his predictions came true. Let me show you. Let me kind of Bible nerd out on you for a second, okay? This is a timeline that you'll find in your Bible programs online or maybe in some of your super studious Bibles. It is not meant for you to be able to read each of those lines. You're like, Dave, that's not going to help. Let me tell you what this timeline is showing. Um, Oh, I get to use the laser pointer. I just thought of this. Uh, Here's Micah. Oh, you can't see it. Micah lived roughly from here, far left, to about here-ish, just before 700 BC. That's his career of prophecy. What this timeline shows is this, that the predictions Micah said would come true came true in his lifetime. He was not stoned, killed as a false prophet because it came true in his lifetime. If you go from about 700, before, 700 years before Christ moving forward, you know what the rest of the timeline shows? It shows that after his death, the things that he predicted would come true continued to come true. History bore out the reality that Micah was a prophet of God. Watch this. Christian or non-Christian historian, you look on the history of this time period, and Micah gets 100%. How on earth does he get 100% of things in the future? You can't predict where the next wildfire comes from, can you? None of you can. Anyone want to go on record and we'll kill you if you're wrong? It's a bad trade. How do you know 100% of these different things that are going to go on? Let's move on. 700 years after predicting that a resolution would come to the great problem he's discussing. What's the great problem? That God is just and cares about sin and he's the justifier who takes care of sin. Micah continues an impossible problem that's put before the human race. How can God be all loving and overlook sin and be all just and fair? How can that possibly be? He predicts that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. By the way, that's Micah 5, and that's yet another prediction that came true. And he knows all this with 100% accuracy because of one simple word. It's the word revelation. That's the only way. He is told it directly by God. God sees the beginning from the end. It's no big feat at all to know what's coming. And so he tells it to his prophets. Let me make this jump to Neighborhood Bible Church. Revelation is why we trust the Bible. The Bible has been, continues to be, and I'm utterly confident, I stake my life on the fact that it will continue to be trustworthy and true. It will stand the test of all these other historical things happening. It will not fail. All right, if you're in Deuteronomy, turn to Micah. We're in Micah chapter 7. And while you're turning to Micah chapter 7, here's a little question for you. Think about finals in school. Do you prefer finals in school that just looks at the last section of your material as a student, or do you prefer an overview where it goes over the entire 
uh, the entire semester or quarter. Let's take a quick poll. How many wish, how many enjoy when finals are just on the last section and not on the whole thing? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you prefer, man, I want to see the whole thing and I want to be, I want to be tested on all of that. Okay. James is the weird one. No, I'm just kidding. Anyone else? Okay. So I think there's a split a little bit, but, but maybe more of us want less is more or something. Um, here's the beauty of this morning. You don't have to choose. We're going to cover chapter 7 and an overview of the whole thing. So it's finals time for, for, the, for the whole deal. First, a quick look at the very last chapter. Remember that chapter 7 begins with lament. Lament is just this word of, of it's, it's so detestable. Things are so unsatisfactory that I'm in misery. Micah's in misery. Why? Because the good is gone. Listen carefully. Christians interpret current events in light of Scripture. Not the other way around. What's the other way around? It's interpreting Scripture in light of current events. I want to say this again because I think this is really important. It's actually dividing the church right now, I think. Christians interpret current events in light of Scripture and not Scripture in light of current events. As such, we preach the Bible around here and not the news cycle. What I mean by that is this. Someone, somewhere is pulling the strings to figure out what is on your feed for news articles, right? Someone somewhere is picking what shows up on the news. Someone somewhere is showing, uh, is approving and editing and steering what articles are written in your favorite publication. No matter how you get your information, someone somewhere is shining a spotlight somewhere on that. Does it not stand a reason that if a spotlight is shown, and we can only handle so much on any given day, 24-hour news cycle, week, month, that a vast majority of the world and topics are left in the dark? Here's one of the problems with topical preaching that a preacher can have. I would be tempted over the last 15 years to preach on things that I am strong in spiritually, things that I naturally like to preach on, things that I understand and can appear to have something to offer. You know what happens when I go through a book of the Bible? I lose control of all of that. If I ever skip passages that seem like, huh, I wonder why a pastor skipped that one. You don't need this from me. You have it from God. Call me on it. There are reasons we skipped. We could have spent 32 weeks in Micah. Easy. There's so much there. It's really, really good. So there are reasons that we skip certain parts of Scripture. But teaching through the Scripture, there's a certain accountability to it. Now, here's what we have found over and over and over and over again. In fact, it is a marvelous, amazing thing that continues to stir my faith. God is ever relevant. God is ever speaking clearly into our times. When I say that we don't preach the news cycle, we don't preach mindless of the news cycle. We are ever aware of what's going on, but we allow Scripture to interpret what's going on and not the other way around. I bring that all up because of this. This last Tuesday, right through this room in the share room, a circle of middle schoolers and myself and Lucas and a couple of other leaders prayed for the Afghan people. We prayed for the Afghan people because of this. The message Matt gave us on Tuesday night as youth was this. Many of you are heading back to a school that is not welcoming and affirming of Christians. It is no longer a safe place, a safe space for Christians to just be out there with their faith. You will face persecution. 
Now, before we get too down on what that all means and woe is me, let's tell you a story that's a true story that's going on right now. And that is, it is lamentable that good leaders and good structures and systems are gone from Afghanistan right now. And when good leaders and good systems are gone, evil's allowed to flourish and flood in. So we see these images that's only gotten worse since Tuesday, hasn't it? By Tuesday, I hadn't seen images of people literally throwing their children over a wall to a stranger in an army uniform to say, I think that's better than the burning building I'm in called my home country. So as we prayed about our faith remaining strong on our campuses, which is a challenge, not diminishing that, we are mindful of Christians worldwide who are being called right now by Taliban people saying, we know who you are and we're coming for you. So in solidarity, we're going to pray for them. We're going to be with them. And it's going to actually inform us as we lament, as we look at the scriptures and say, woe is the world. Woe is, is our church. Woe is me. We look at our headlines and say, that's it. It's right there. When good leaders are gone, good people go crazy. That's what we're witnessing. We're going to have more on this next week. Our GO team, which is global outreach team, is praying and prepping and hearing from different people on the ground. This directly touches a couple of people we support as missionaries. And next week, you're going to actually have some calls to action. But let me not minimize something that the scriptures tell us to do. Continue steadfastly in prayer. A video that Sharon and Chuck sent to me this week uh, tells a guy on the ground there saying, do not, Christians around the world, do not discount prayer. That's our secret weapon. That's calling down all of heaven to do this. God moves somehow when people cry out to him in utter anguish. You know, Micah models for God's people what God's people do in any crisis. Whether it be Afghanistan or right in here, And it's found in Micah 7, 7. It was the end that we ended with last week. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I want to quickly look at verses 8 to 10. This is a message that Micah gives directly to his enemies, the enemies of God, oppressors of people and experts at evil. Here's the big idea. Don't gloat. You think this is your doing, Assyria? You think this is your doing, Babylon? That it's just your great mighty army? It's not. That's how it looks in current events. But when you pull back the lens of history and you see that God predicted this, hey, a spanking is coming like no other. First this, then this, then you'll be in exile. Then you look at that timeline, you go, wow, it's exactly what happened. It unfolded the way that God said Micah 7, 8, look at it with me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to light. I shall look upon his vindication. Let me stop there for a second. Do you hear the gospel in Micah chapter 7? It begins, woe is me. Woe is me. He's already pronounced woe on other people, but he does it with tears because he's a true prophet of God. He's got a sensitive heart. And then he says in verse 8, after discipline comes delight. Who says that unless God's revealed this? Verse 8, when I fall, I shall rise. 
And then there's such a clear picture of gospel truth in Micah. I have sinned. That's personal confession, personal accountability for wrongdoing. And I will bear the shame until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And this could read so much like much of the book of Romans and other parts of the New Testament. What is my only hope of forgiveness and freedom from my sin, which shames me? God. The very judge who is going to come and execute judgment will plead my cause. The one who executes judgment doesn't dismiss sin. is the same one who will save me. The one who exposes my fall in all its ugliness will help me rise. He will bring me to the light. Now catch this. We get to read this post-cross. We get to read this in light of the life, birth, actions, words, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. On the other side of the cross, so many of these pieces just pop. And we go, wow, we see the picture really clearly. But you know what? Micah didn't understand that. What did Micah know of the exact plan of God? Only what God revealed. That's it. He only had part of the story. And just like Micah, we can receive by faith. God, that's a, that's a, that's a promise and a problem. I can't even understand how to articulate it. But you do. So on the front end of problems and things that couldn't possibly work out from our mind, we can leave it to God to trust Romans 8. We know that God, those who love God, God works all things together for good. Also, like Micah, we'll have no idea how, most, if he, do it, how, how he will do it. Most of the time it will seem impossible. How can God be both the just and justifier? Uh, here's Romans 3.22. Sinners are justified by grace. Everyone's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 25 says this, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Watch this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's the solution to the problems that Micah brings up? It's only Jesus. It's just Jesus. That's the only one who's able to do this. And how God does this is actually seen in this last chapter. We're going to end our service hearing this amazing resolution that absolutely points to a clear picture of the gospel But I want you to see 8 through 10 sort of overlaid on the cross. Enemies gloating over Jesus. Instead of sinful people bearing their indignation until God rescues them, it's the sinless one, the spotless lamb, bearing the indignation and shame of sinners. It's the one who is going into the dark, but gloriously through the resurrection is brought into the light, and we get to follow him there. So incredibly powerful. We're about to head into a prayer prompt, and just as we do, I want to remind you of a huge message, a huge theme in Micah, and it's this. It's time to face the music, 
And it's not a pop song. It's not a party song. It's not a road trip song. It's a dirge. There's judgment coming. The pronouncement is dire judgment of sin. The book opens on all of humanity. That's why even in Rob's last verse there, it's for all of humanity. And essentially he's saying, don't make me come down there. But then he does. When we think of God and him dealing justly with sin, who is like God? Imagine the authority figures presently in your life or in your past life. God is not out of control with sin. Isn't that how many of our authority figures act? You've wronged me. You've broken my rule. You've disrespected. I'm now red-faced and screaming at you. When God comes down, he's not red-faced and out of control. But he's also not out of touch regarding your sin. That's the other way that authority figures go. Just out to lunch. They're not paying attention at all. God is not out of control and red-faced. God is not out to lunch. God is very present with your sin. He has seen to forbear for a season. And now through the prophet Micah, he's saying enough is enough. I'm coming down there and here's my pronouncement. Remember that prophets are alarms. You can ignore your engine light, but it doesn't take the truth of what might be going on in your car away. Micah comes as an alarm. His pronouncement, remember through the book, is for the people of God. What's the modern day equivalent? It's for the church. It's for Christians. They've cheated on God and they've done it in Jerusalem, no less. The most sacred and holy space is where they're doing it. If you take anything away from Micah, take this away. Micah leaves no doubt that God is committed to judgment. God is as committed to judgment and justice as he is to redemption and rescue. Don't we love to sing about the redemption and rescue of God? Tons of songs on that. How many songs are there that exalt that God, you are utterly committed to judgment and to justice? I'll tell you who holds on to that today very powerfully. It's the Christian church in Afghanistan. The Afghan Christians today celebrate that God is just as committed to judge the wicked and to make things fair and right in the end someday as he is to our rescue and our redemption. Today I want to lead you in cooperating with goodness and justice and fairness in our lives. Part of what we can do here, and Phil, if you don't mind just bringing the house lights down right now, Um, we lament that the good is gone in our leaders. We can lament that the good is gone in other people. Um, Church, a regular part of Christian worship is lamenting that the good is gone in my own heart. God, the good intentions I had last Sunday evaporated. So what I want to do right now is this. Individually, potentially collectively, maybe as a household, you want to gather and pray some of these things out loud. Maybe just as an individual, you want to take this time and just, and just be before God and pray silently. If you feel led, feel free to lead out and, and lead the church in this. But here's the prompt. I'm going to put it up here for you. God, you are not out of control in your anger at sin, nor are you out of touch regarding sin. 
And I'll leave this up here for minutes at a time. We're going to take the next five, ten minutes. So you don't need to write this down. But here's my prayer. I'm open, present, listening, and ready to receive the truth about my own sin. I trust you enough not to rush, skim, ignore, rationalize, compare, or blame. Show me the truth of me. Test me. So we're not putting lyrics to the screen, uh, to the songs up. We may sing some songs. The band may play some instrumental. But right now, as the music plays, allow this just to be a prayer time, church, and a time of opening ourselves to the Lord. Would you close your eyes and just listen to these words? God, here is my mind. Show me my envious, proud, mean, grudging, lustful, skewed thoughts. God, here's my heart. Reveal my vain glories. Reveal my snaring affections. Show me how I'm cheating on you and to those I'm committed to. God, here are my hands. Tell me the good they've failed to accomplish and the corruptions that they have participated in. Church, you can go on with your money with your time, with your energy, with your gifting, with your brokenness. Ben, would you lead us in a song? And church, just pray. You can pray this out loud as a group uh, or individually. Let's spend some time before the Lord. Like Judah and Samaria, we're corrupt. We're idol worshipers. And for us, often our idols are these things. Power. Uh, longing for influence or recognition. Right? We'd all like to experience power in our lives, to feel like we have power. Control. Uh, longing to hate everything, or to have everything go according to our plan. And comfort. A longing for pleasure or approval a longing to be accepted or desired. When these things replace God or when we pursue these things in a way that doesn't please God, they're idols in our lives. And the pages of Micah should make us really uncomfortable because when we see who we are, when we see that we're idol worshipers, we should also see God's anger in response. Paul writes to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This wickedness that infects Judah and Samaria and us, it has a punishment because God takes our sins so seriously. Sometimes we're tempted to think that the Old Testament tells us about a God who hasn't yet gone to therapy and that the New Testament God is, is a kinder, gentler God that we get to experience. But all of Scripture is about one God who is the same all the way through, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we're reading the story of one God. And let me assure you that the God who we see angered by sin in Micah is the same God that we worship today. God takes Adam and Eve's sin so seriously in Genesis that they're going to die for their sin. And in Micah, we see that 
God in justice cannot overlook the sins of his people. And this is still true. It was true in the beginning, it's true today, but there's hope. Paul declares, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God takes our sins so seriously that our punishment is death, but he takes his love for us so seriously that he died on the cross. Micah points to God's divine rescue plan. Look at Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Not all will believe in the name of Jesus, but for those who do, there is the promise of eternal life because God takes his love for us seriously. We can be the remnant who will experience God's forgiveness and love. I love that last line. God delights in steadfast love, and he's so steadfast that he goes to the cross. Many of us in this room know Jesus as our Savior. Praise God. But one of the things that I've noticed in our church culture in America, and I think it goes back 50, maybe 75 years, is that we can be really good about confessing our sin and looking to Jesus as our Savior. But I want you to take a look at the next verse, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God will cast our sins into the depths of the ocean, friends. But too often, we look to Jesus as our Savior, and then we get comfortable with the sin that breaks God's heart, the sin that angers him. God takes our sins seriously, and we take it seriously enough to seek him for forgiveness, but not seriously enough to strive to live the righteous life that he desires for us, that he desires for his remnant to live a life of giving our sins to God every day that he might cast our sins into the depths of the ocean. What does God desire? He desires for us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. The Christian life is not about being saved. It's about allowing God to do a good work in us, a sanctifying work to make us more like his son. But too often, we walk away from God on Sunday afternoon only to come back to him the next week. In Micah 7.19, we see that part of God's compassion is that he's going to cast our, sea, our sins into the sea. We know that ultimately God's going to do this, but we don't do the work of seeking to partner with God to throw our sins into the sea today. We need to pursue the holiness that God desires for us today. When we rightly understand the evil of our sin, the wickedness of our heart, it should motivate us to walk humbly with God. Not out of rote obedience, but out of a grateful heart. We deserve the wrath of God, but we receive the grace of God. Let our lives be grateful to God for what he has done. And may our lives be an expression of worship and obedience in light of God's goodness. We don't do it alone. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit.
Micah leaves us with this truth. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. Who is God? God is steadfast. He was steadfast in his love of Jacob, steadfast in his love of Abraham, and he's steadfast in his love of us. My hope for you is that you're brokenhearted by your sinfulness. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I ask that you call out to him today and receive the gift of grace that he promises for all who believe in his name. He will be faithful. When we know Jesus as our Savior, we can celebrate this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus as your Savior, I ask you to reflect on how you're living this morning. Is he your Lord? Search your heart. Seek the grace of God. He forgives us of our sins and he helps us to walk humbly with him today. We need to desperately call out to the God who takes our sins seriously, but who also takes a relationship with us more seriously. A God who desires to be in relation with us so much that he went to the cross. Friends, you have the opportunity to know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Take your sin seriously, but also take your relationship with God seriously. In Jesus, we are not condemned, but given new life and a new relationship. So how do you need to respond to this invitation? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to have a time of prayer and reflection, and I just invite you to reflect on this verse. How do you relate to it? Lord, show us our desperate need of you that we might know the fullness of your steadfast love by walking humbly with you because of the work of the cross, because of your son, Jesus.